for everyone in the room that is married, I want to ask you this question. Can you remember the words that the preacher spoke on your wedding day? Beyond the vows and beyond the opening remarks, there's always some kind of a short sermon on how the, the perfect love of God, the perfect plan of God is reflected in the loving relationship between a man and a woman. That speech was the climactic moment of one of the most important days of your life. However, even if you were just married yesterday, the odds are you probably don't remember what the preacher said. Is that the truth? However, there are some in this place today that have been married for, uh, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And if I were to ask you a different question, can you tell me the words of a song that was sung in your wedding? Most of the people that are here that have that, that, that no matter how many years you've been married, you can recall the words of a song that was sung in the wedding. Even if you can't remember the words the preacher said, nobody remembers what the guy in the suit and tie said about marriage, but everybody remembers that special song that was sung. The reason for that is simple and profound. There is something special that happens in your brain when you interact with information that is composed in lyrics and fused into a melody. It's just the way God made us. Our brains love music. We, when, when you hear a tune, you don't even have to know the tune. Your body automatically begins to sway. There's automatically that rhythm. They, they, the scientists have done studies and have shown that as you listen to music, the heartbeat, the rhythm of your heart adjusts to the tempo of the music. God made us that way. He made us reactive to songs. He, he made us reactive to music. I can remember very little of what happened in the third grade. I can barely tell you who my teachers were. I certainly cannot tell you what they taught me. But I can vividly remember my third grade music class. And I can, to this day, tell you the words of a simple, silly song that I learned in the third grade that I have never sung since. That's just the way God made us. We are predisposed to remember information when it's set to a musical score. When words are set to a song, uh, they, they become more readily available for our recall than any other learning method. Think about it for a minute. Which, is, which learning experience was easier for you? Memorizing the multiplication tables or learning your ABCs? Because that little hymn that taught you, that little nursery rhyme that taught you your ABCs, that was easy. And which one do you, you know, I'll, I'll just be honest, I'm no math whiz. Sometimes I struggle with my multiplication tables at the age of 42, amen? But I still remember the ABC song, Right? We were hardwired to remember lyrics through songs. That's why those irritating little commercial jingles are so prone to get stuck in your brain. 
You may hear the ad just a time or two, but the jingle gets stuck in your head, and you find yourself, brother, there at the most unexpected of moments, swaying to the rhythm of a tune about bologna or Coca-Cola or even toilet paper. It's just the way our brains work. Perhaps that's why singing has always been an important part of the Christian church service from the very beginning. Singing in the church is not a modern development. Singing in the church is not something we've just started to do in the last century. The very earliest of Christians sang when they gathered together for church. And I've heard some folks bemoan the singing that happens in church as if it was just something that we do to feel the time or to showcase talent. That's not what singing is all about. Singing is about bringing folks together in the easiest, most natural form of corporate worship. And even the worst singers among us, of whom I am chief, will join their voices together with the congregation as the, as the praise team begins to sing and magnify the Lord together in song. It's been that way from the very beginning of the church, from the church's earliest roots in the first century when people first gathered together in house churches before and during the time in which the New Testament was being written. They expressed their love for and adoration of and thankfulness to Jesus Christ in the words of their songs. And they sang them together in corporate worship. This morning we're kicking off a sermon series about some of the songs that the earliest Christians sang in their worship services, the songs that they sang about Jesus and about what he accomplished at the cross. Those songs were original compositions. They were songs that were inspired by the anointing of the Spirit. Before the cross, before the upper room, before the Holy Ghost was poured out, before the church came into being, when Jesus gathered with his disciples, they sang together. They sang from the Psalms. As a matter of fact, Matthew and Mark both record at the Last Supper that that Jesus sang with his disciples psalms from the Hebrew Psalter. They they sang psalms uh, uh, of the Hebrews, those songs that had been recorded in Scripture. But after the cross... After the resurrection, after the outpouring of the Holy Ghost in the upper room, after the revelation of the wonder of Calvary, there were new songs that needed to be sung. There were new lyrics that needed to be written. There were songs about the stone that the builder rejected, uh, but has now been made the chief uh, of the cornerstone. There were songs about the cross and songs about salvation and songs about deliverance from sin, but most importantly, They were songs about Jesus. That's where the Hebrew Psalms would no longer suffice. The Psalms declared the promise of a coming Messiah. 
But the church of the first century sang songs that declared the identity of the one who came to take away the sins of the world. The Psalms looked forward, but they stopped short of the everlasting truth that defined the lives of the church in the first century because they knew the one that the Psalms only sung about. They walked with him. They talked with him. They experienced him. And they put in their songs the things that he said and that he did. The Psalms stopped short of telling how God became a man and dwelt among them. The Psalms couldn't tell how no man had seen God at any time, but God declared himself in the flesh in the man Christ Jesus. Uh, No psalm could tell how Jesus told the whole story about God. And the disciples had no qualms uh, about who he was. Uh, They had no qualms uh, about declaring his majesty, his deity, and his glory. They would declare that they had seen the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. These wonderful new and powerful truths required that new songs be written. That new hymns be sung. That Jesus would be exalted for who he really was. And the wonderful thing about these songs is that some of them found their way into scripture. Particularly in the writings of Paul, although this is not unique to Paul. But there were moments in the course of the writing of the New Testament when those men, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that the words of the songs that the church sang together echoed through their minds, and they wrote out those words in lyrical form in the text of the New Testament to reinforce what they were saying. Paul did this probably more frequently than any other, or definitely more frequently than any other New Testament writer. And he did this because he knew that his readers were already familiar with these songs. They, they were songs that they sang together when they came together in their worship, song, worship service. So Paul used the words of these songs to endorse the message that he was writing. It was a type of internal validation where Paul used the words of, the, of songs that were common to them to show that what he was writing was consistent with what they had been already been taught. Amen. Now, the awesome part about these songs is that they were already in circulation before Paul took his pen in hand to write the letters that became the New Testament. These hymns, if you understand what I'm telling you, these hymns that we're going to study in the coming weeks are even more ancient than the letters that contain them, than the books of the Bible that they're found in. If you want to look for the kind of worship that originated on the red-hot altar of revival in the first century church, these hymns are as close as you will ever get to the way they had church in the days and weeks immediately following the upper room. These hymns are as close as you're ever going to get to what they thought and how they praised God and the words that they said when they gathered together in church. And here's the thing. Without exception, these songs are all about Jesus. 
They identified Jesus as the mighty God come in the flesh to redeem his people. They are some of the most oneness passages of scripture in the whole Bible. And they demonstrate that the very earliest doctrine of the church recognized Jesus as God. These passages that we will study in the coming weeks are songs, uh, but they're so much more than just songs. Uh, they contain the doctrines of the early church. Uh, in the lyrics of these songs, we'll learn that the early church uh, wasn't hesitant about saying uh, that the man, Christ Jesus, uh, was God manifest in the flesh. For the next several weeks, we'll focus on the words of an individual song each Sunday, a different song each week. This will carry us through the end of the year, and, and that's not because I have a huge volume of lessons I want to do, but we don't have a service next Sunday because of our fall festival. Amen. Everybody remember that. 1230 to 4 is our fall festival. There'll be no service next Sunday. Then Thanksgiving Sunday will roll around, and that's the same way we do a 2 o'clock service on Thanksgiving Day. So we won't have Sunday school then. Christmas falls on a Sunday, and we won't be having service on Christmas Day. And so there, there are several Sundays where we won't be teaching from this series. And because of that, it's easy uh, to make the length of this series all the way to the end of the year. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at these individual songs. Now, there are about a dozen of these places in the New Testament that are quotations from songs. And we we won't cover all of them, but we are going to cover a representative sample of them, and it may be that at another point later on I may come back and cover uh, some more of them. But this morning, by way of introduction, I want to focus for just a few moments on the significance of singing in the church, why they sung, why we sing. Have you ever wondered why we sing in church? 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 26. I'll take about four or five passages this morning, and this is the first one. It says, How is it then, brethren? When you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. So these are this passage gives us a rare glimpse into worship in the early Christian church. The things that are listed here are the things that happened when the church met. When the church met in the first century, there was singing. There was teaching or doctrine. There were tongues. There was a revelation. There was even interpretation. All of that happened in the context of Christian worship. Now, we strive to be apostolic in every way possible. And our worship service shouldn't be that different from their worship service. When we come together, this verse lets us know what we ought to expect when we come to church. When we come together, there ought to be singing. There ought to be teaching. There ought to be some speaking in tongues. There ought to be a revelation of the Spirit. There ought to be an interpretation of prophetic utterances. Uh, there ought to be a move of the Holy Ghost. Anything less than that is settling for something less than the kind of church that they had in the first century. Amen? So what this verse tells us is that, while not everyone was a speaker, not everyone was a teacher, not everyone gave a prophetic utterance, not everyone had a revelation or an interpretation, every person did contribute to the service in some meaningful way. Paul said everyone was involved. Even those who didn't preach... Even those who didn't teach, even those who didn't operate in the gifts of the Spirit were worshipers. The church 
sang and the whole church sang along. It is important for us to see this morning uh, that singing was at the heart of Christian worship. It was the way that everyone became involved in worship. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. And it's going to sound a little odd, but I need to read verse 17 to set the context. It says this, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. And we, lots of people stop right there, and, and, and you can preach whole sermons out of that. But that's not where we're going. Because the latter half of that verse says this, But be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So Paul mentions three variations on singing. There's some debate if the different forms of singing are distinctly different or not. However, the fact that the final item in the list uh, differentiates itself by the fact that it is spiritual singing or spirit-led singing or spirit-inspired singing leads to the conclusion that what we see here are three different kinds of songs that they sung in the first century church. The first song is... A psalm, and that probably refers to the kind of singing that Jesus did with his disciples, singing from the Old Testament worship hymns, like those that are recorded in the book of Psalms. Those things were a part of, of Jewish worship for centuries before the church was ever founded. And there's no doubt that the church in the early goings in the first century had had its a deep influence from Jewish worship. And there's no doubt they carried that same practice into their worship songs. But Paul says they didn't just sing psalms. There were hymns. And the hymns probably represent those original New Testament compositions of praise that were composed by the members of the early church. They were different than the Psalms, as I've already pointed out this morning, because the Psalms looked forward to the Messiah, but the hymns, uh, they declared uh, who he was. It seems reasonable that the church would sing both kinds of songs, uh, the songs of the ages that declared that the Messiah was coming, and the songs of their own era that declared that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. The third and final category was spiritual songs, which most scholars agree is probably a reference to spontaneous, spirit-inspired singing. They were lyrical compositions that were conceived in the moment and given voice to by a singer who was under the influence of the Holy Ghost. Once again, what is important for us this morning is that the early church was a singing church. And Paul concludes verse 19 by telling us that their singing involved making melody in their hearts to the Lord. That tells us something important about the worship of the early church. It, it was not just an intellectual pursuit. It was not merely the telling of facts. There was something in their singing that flowed from the heart. Uh, how many know 
know what I'm talking about this morning. You can sing in church and you can just go through the motions and you can just say what you know you ought to say and then you can sing where it flows from your heart, where it comes from deep down inside, where there's something spiritual that takes place uh, when you begin to sing. Uh, you see, singing cannot be divorced uh, from the heart. Uh, it flows from the heart. Uh, it flows from the inner man. Uh, it flows from that place uh, where you're set right with God as the Spirit of God flows into your life. It may be fair to ask what causes these songs of praise to flow from the heart. The answer is in the latter half of verse 18. Paul encouraged them in verse 18 to be filled with the Spirit. And it was from a Spirit-filled heart that worship was born. I can't emphasize this strongly enough this morning. New Testament singing is a spiritual endeavor. These were Spirit-filled believers. And when they sang, something happened in them that had happened for no other course of believers in all the centuries that preceded them. For hundreds of years, people sang the Psalms. Uh, but there never was a time uh, that they sang uh, and they were filled with the Spirit uh, as they were singing. When they made melody in their hearts... They were renewed in the Holy Ghost. When they sang unto the Lord, they were filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit was an integral part of their worship. Clinton Arnold, in his commentary on Ephesians, notes the parallel between this passage and the Old Testament passage of 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. You don't have to put that on the screen. There the Scripture says, that when they lifted up their voices with the trumpets and with the cymbals and with the instruments of music and they praised the Lord at the dedication of Solomon's temple, the glory of the Lord filled the house uh, to such an extent uh, that the priests could no longer minister. Uh, they couldn't do what they came to do because of the cloud of the glory of the Lord that descended on that house. Arnold suggests that perhaps the New Testament church had that same expectation. Perhaps they believed uh, that God, uh, who no longer inhabited temples made by men's hands, uh, but now lived in the hearts of men and women, uh, that when they came together and they lifted their voice with the sound of the trumpet and the psalter and the harp, uh, and they began to magnify God, that God would fill his temple with his presence. Uh, that God would fill their lives uh, with his spirit. So when Paul linked the infilling of the spirit and singing together, he may have been sharing a powerful insight into what it really means to make melody with the heart. As my spirit joins with the spirit uh, that is within me, that Holy Ghost uh, that God has placed in my life uh, and worship flows from my heart. Uh, it's more than just a habitual routine repetition of familiar words. It's a function uh, of the spirit. Uh, and as I worship him, uh, he renews the Holy Ghost uh, inside of me. As I magnify him, uh, he, he amplifies uh, 
the presence of God in my life. How many of you have ever come dragging into a Sunday night worship service when you feel like you've been fighting the devil all afternoon? Amen. And you don't even feel like being here. But you lift your hands and you begin to sing praise unto the Lord. And something happens on the inside. And that renewing of the presence of God is loosed and you're filled with the Spirit as you sing. It's a function of the Holy Ghost. It's a function of the Spirit. As I worship Him, He renews me in His Spirit. If nothing else, passages like these show us how important songs were to the first century church. Christian, Christianity in its earliest stages of development sprung out of Jewish worship practices. And it's only natural that they would express their worship in ways that were, they were accustomed with. When the children of Israel crossed over the Red Sea, they, they, they got to the other side and they watched the waters crash in on the Pharaoh's army. How many remember what they did there on the banks of the Red Sea? Anybody know? They broke out the tambourine and they began to sing and dance and worship the Lord. As a matter of fact, Moses himself composed a song that day. He wrote the words of a song that we call Moses' psalm uh, about the deliverance of God. For the Israelites, their worship songs were the main way that they conveyed the mighty deeds of God. They rehearsed in dramatic fashion the mighty works that God had done through the words of a song. And those songs were passed from generation to generation so that what God did long ago was kept fresh in the memory of future generations. Every time they sang those songs, uh, they recalled, and in some significant way, they relived uh, the deliverance of God. Uh, for generations later, amen, when they faced things uh, that seemed impossible, and they begin to sing a song uh, of how God brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea. Uh, and how he drowned Pharaoh and all of his armies under those mighty waters. Uh, they were reminded uh, that the same God who was God then uh, was still God in their lives today. Amen. So it would only be natural for the New Testament church to celebrate its liberation from sin in the same manner as their ancestors. They sang songs about the goodness of God and all he had done for them. They sang about deliverance. They sang about the cross. They sang about Jesus, about how he had taken away the bondage of sin. They sang about the great power of God that was manifest in Jesus Christ. Their first motivation for singing was worship. And they were exalting God for what he had done. The hymns that we're going to look at represent the great exaltation and adoration that the early church had for Jesus. And they demonstrate clearly that the early church recognized Jesus as God from the very beginning. Now that's important because some theologians would try to tell you that it wasn't until centuries later 
that the church recognized the deity of Jesus. Some would say it almost as much as 400 years later before the church began to practice the, 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 the worship of Jesus as deity. But the words of the songs that we're going to look at over the next several weeks clearly demonstrate that the early church worshiped Jesus as God from the very beginning before the New Testament was even written. These are the songs they sung. They weren't just hymns. They were hymns about him. They were praises to the God who was made known in Jesus Christ. But they sang for another much more important purpose. They sang to convey the doctrinal truths that were precious to them. They recognized what I was trying to tell you at the outset of this lesson. They understood that our brains are wired for song and that the best way to ensconce the doctrinal truths in the church is to put them in a song. So their songs reflected their theology. Their songs were used to teach their doctrine by singing their theology, by singing about the mighty God in Jesus. They ingrained it into their thinking and they safeguarded themselves and future generations against false doctrine. Remember the analogy that we used a few weeks ago about how you tell the difference between a fake $100 bill and a real $100 bill? You don't study the fake. You study the original. Because if you become familiar enough with the original, the fake stands out. Amen. That's what these songs did for the early church. Uh, they taught the truth uh, of who Jesus really is. Uh, they were in the words of a song. Uh, the information's broken down into manageable, bite-sized pieces. And it's easy to recall. And it sticks in the conscience for years and years to come. It's the best way to keep false doctrine out of the church. There are several texts that illustrate that, and I'll start back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, with the text we just now looked at. And here, after having said in verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit, Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. That word, speaking, seems oddly out of place in a passage about singing, about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You don't speak those things. You sing them. But the term speaking in the context in which it's used conveys the idea, Brother Donnie, of giving instruction. It conveys the idea of teaching. In other words, they taught their doctrine through the songs that they sung. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 really drives that home. There Paul writes this. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Right? We're teaching and we're admonishing. How? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The same list we saw just a minute ago. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace. Where? In your hearts. This is the kind of singing they did. It flows from the heart to the Lord. 
So the purpose of singing, according to Paul, is that the words of Christ would dwell in them richly in all wisdom. That tells us that the best way to get the word into your heart is through singing. They taught one another and they admonished one another through the words of their songs. Did you ever wonder what they preached in the early church? I can tell you what they preached because it's in their songs. Their songs complemented their preaching and their teaching. They taught one another through the songs that they sung. Uh, The truths that they wanted to make sure were never lost in future generations were embedded in the songs that they sung. Uh, Those hymns that we're going to look at over the next few Sundays uh, are all about Jesus. Uh, They reflect the wonderful truth uh, of the identity of Jesus Christ uh, as God manifest in the flesh. Uh, They unapologetically identify Jesus as God. To the early church, that was the vital truth that they wanted to communicate to future generations. That's why their hymns were all about him. I'm coming to a close. I'm not going to be very much longer. But they sang for another reason too. In the early church, they sang their songs in the darkest moments of their lives. They recognized the renewing power of their songs and when they needed encouragement and when they didn't know where else to turn and when the outlook was bleak and when when everything seemed to be against them brother randy they lifted their voice in song one more passage of scripture acts chapter 16 beginning in verse 25 but at midnight paul and silas prayed and sang praises To God. I'm reading from the New King James. It says they sang and singing hymns to God. That same word that we saw over and over and over again. They were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners heard them. They were listening to them. And the scripture says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, uh, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. In the midnight hour, when they were at their low point, when they were weakened by the loss of blood, when they were aching from the stripes on their back, when the outlook was anything but favorable, Paul and Silas did the most unthinkable of things. They began to sing songs to God. The words of their song caused their souls to soar. Above the stale air of confinement, beyond the stench of a prison cell, in the middle of the night, in the complete and utter darkness, they sang a song about deliverance. They sang a song about redemption. They sang a song that declared who Jesus was. And the Bible tells us that the other prisoners were listening to them. That suggests that they were all in the same cell. They said that at the night time they would take the prisoners and they would take them to the most secure cell deepest in the prison and they would force them all into the same cell and that's where they would hold them overnight with a single guard who could watch over them. That is uh, consistent with the story that we find in the scripture. So there Paul and Silas are in those confined cramped quarters 
They've been beaten. They're uncomfortable. It's dark. And there are people all around them. And they still began to sing. They sung because the song reminded them of the delivering power of God. They sung because the words of their songs stirred faith in their hearts. They sung because the truth of the ages was contained in the words of their songs. I can tell you what they sang. Uh, they sang about Jesus. Uh, they sang about his deliverance. Uh, they sang about who he was. Uh, and from their prison shackles, uh, they sung about broken chains uh, and liberated hearts. Uh, and when they lifted their voices in song, one commentator said that all of a sudden the rocks cried out with them. All of a sudden, uh, in their great crescendo of praise, uh, as they magnified the Lord in their song, uh, the foundations of the prison were shaken by a powerful earthquake. And the prison doors, the scripture said, flew open and their chains literally fell away from them. That's the power of a song. That's why we sing. We sing because we were made to worship. We sing because songs resonate with our soul. We sing because we believe somewhere deep in our hearts we inherently know that the truth of what we believe is best conveyed in the words of a song. So we sing about Jesus. We sing about his great love. We sing about a cross at Calvary. We sing about an empty tomb. We sing songs that declare who Jesus really is. But beyond all of that, we sing because singing sets our hearts free. When we make melody in our hearts, something spiritual happens. And the liberty of God flows into our lives. That's why we sing. We sing because singing shakes the foundation of our prison cells. We sing because singing causes the shackles to fall from our arms. We sing because singing chases the darkness out of our lives and illuminates us with the glory of God. That's why we sing. When 10-year-old Willie Myrick was kidnapped from his front yard in Atlanta, Georgia in April of 2014, it was a song that set him free. Later, Willie would tell the story. You may have heard it. it. It made its rounds through the news media a couple of years ago. Willie told how that he was playing in his front yard when a gray Honda Accord pulled up to the curb alongside of him and a stranger jumped out and wrestled him into the car. Willie tried to yell for help, but the man covered his mouth with his hand. And unable to cry out for help, Willie was tossed into the locked back seat of a car. And then the car sped down the road. And Willie said at that moment, he was scared to death. He believed his life was over. But in an instant, fear turned to faith. And Willie began to sing a song. The words of Hezekiah Walker's popular song, Every Praise, began to echo through that car. The song says every praise is to our God. Every word of worship is to our God. Every praise, every praise is to our God. Brother Larry, if you don't mind to grab Brother Ryan. Willie said that the kidnappers 
started to curse. The man started to get agitated and upset. Repeatedly, he told Willie to shut up. Repeatedly, he told Willie to silence himself. But Willie just kept singing every praise is to our God. Every word of worship is to our God. Every praise, every praise is to our God. Over and over and over again for three hours as the kidnapper drove to whatever destination he had in mind, Willie sang. He sang at the top of his lungs. He sang when all hope was gone. He sang with everything that he had. When the kidnapper threatened his life, Willie sang. And then finally, it happened. The kidnapper had had enough. He pulled over the car, opened the door, and told Willie, get out of my car. Leave. That's the power of a song. There's power in your praise. It will shake the foundations of your prison. It will shake the foundations of the things that confine you and are trying to destroy you. I wonder this morning what kind of prison cells would shake in this house uh, if somebody lifted their voice uh, in praise. If somebody said, devil, you may think you got me. You may think you had me under your thumb. Uh, you may think you're in control. You may think you're driving the car. But every praise uh, is to my God. Uh, every word of worship. Uh, is to him and him alone. Uh, every praise, uh, every praise is to our God. Would you stand with me? We sing because there's something about a song that sets a soul free. We sing because our worship invites the one we're singing about into our presence. We sing because a song changes everything I wonder this morning what would happen if we as a church would just join our voices together and sing a song of worship to the Lord I wonder what would happen if we would magnify the Lord in this place today I know it's Sunday morning. I know there's pictures going on. I know there's a lot of distractions. But for the next few moments, can I ask you to lift your hands and lift your voice? Uh, and let's magnify the Lord together in the simple words of a song. Let your heart, let your heart be lifted up. Let the Spirit flow. Let the words come from deep on the inside. Uh, every praise, it belongs to Him. Every word of worship, it belongs to Him. Somebody tell Him, Lord Jesus... I come to praise you. I come to praise you, Jesus.